it is rather uncommon for all four of our Sunday readings to cohere just as well as the four do on this first Sunday in Lent in year A. Um, They all meet together. Sometimes you get one or two and we can find some themes, but these are amazingly tight in their relationship to each other. And our Romans passage... Um, is the hinge point of those readings. So we go backwards into uh, Genesis from there, and we go forwards into the Old Testament from there. It's a rather dense text. Well done, reader, because it's not an easy text to read. Um, uh, And it takes some understanding to be able to read it well. Thank you, Deborah. It's um, because he goes off on his rabbit trails, you know, as Paul does. He's starting to say something and then he thinks, oh, well, I was just talking about the law, so I'd better put something in about that. So, um, but basically, if you look at it, you will be able to see that there are lots of comparisons in this text uh, that Paul is writing to the church in Rome. Now, they're comparisons, but they're not exactly equal and opposite because Paul wants to say, if this happened, so much more is the comparison of what happened in Jesus. If this happened, abundantly more is this. And so what he's saying is is that though one happened, the remedy for that one uh, is, is so far, so much far greater than that. So let's look at that. The trespass equals death's dominion. The free gift of righteousness brings in dominion in life. Trespass brings in condemnation for all. The act of righteousness, justification, and life. Disobedience made many sinners. Obedience makes many righteous. And so... Who and what is this one man's trespass, this one man's disobedience? Well, it's Adam's standing in there for for humanity. It was Adam and Eve who were the apogee of God's good original creation. He created all things And having created all of the cosmos, all of the animals, the plant life, the heavens, the earth, everything, then he creates man and woman and breathes his own life into them and makes them stewards, gives them dominion over all that he has created. That's not the kind of lording it over people dominion. It's a servant leadership caring for the good creation to be image bearers of the one in whose image man and woman were made over all the goodness that has been made. And so They are given 
that ministry, that calling, that vocation, and God looks at it and says, it is all good. It's all very good. But what he also did was to man and woman, he gave free will. He gave the ability to choose because he wants, God wants, desires a relationship with these beloved men and women. He wants a free will choice to be made to follow him, to love him, to be obedient to him, to be surrendered to him as a free choice. Sometimes I hear people say, well, why doesn't God just come in and deal with everything and make people be good? Because if he did that, he'd take away our free will. We would just be no more than automatums. We'd be no more than robots. We would be coerced, in a way, to do exactly the will of God. Well, there's no relationship with a robot. Relationships require choice require us to choose one or the other. Or he could have made us just kind of puppets as well. He pulls the strings and we do this or that or the other. But the same applies. But he gave us free will. He gave us the power to choose. That was a risky business. Because the reality is we then get to choose good or evil. We get to choose rightly or wrongly. And our first parents chose wrongly. God told them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that was in the middle of the garden Because what would happen if they did, not out of punishment, but the mere conclusion of doing that would be death. That death would enter in. That they would surely die. So God tells them this, not as a punishment, but for safety for their own well-being. And yet the tempter comes and says nonsense. No, actually, God doesn't want you to eat that. Because if you do, you'll be like him. You'll be more like him. You will have his kind of knowledge. And instead of trusting God, they trust the enemy of our souls. 
and they were disobedient to God. They rebelled against God's good will for them. And through their disobedience, all have become sinners. In the words of N.T. Wright, those who live in the state of sin have the status of sinners. In other words, they are not, that is, basically good people who sometimes do bad things, but are rather basically flawed people whose flaws reveal themselves repeatedly in specific acts of sin. And because of their rebellion, because of their turning their backs on God, because they didn't fully trust God, all of creation, all of God's original good creation, comes under the thrall of death, decay, and more and more under the authority of evil. It's why Satan could actually... Tell Jesus that if he worships the him, then he can give him all of the kingdoms of the world. If it had not been a reality that he could do so, that he was the dark ruler of the world, Jesus would surely have turned around and derided him and say, well, you couldn't possibly offer me that, but this is a true temptation. Satan is giving Jesus the opportunity to fulfill his vocation and his calling in an easy way out. And a way that would make him immediately relevant, spectacular, and powerful. But Jesus' calling is to die. That is why he came. His vocation is to die, and it's to die on the tree. It's to die on the cross. So he uses the vocation of Jesus and twists it around to try and take an easy way out. You know, he does that with us too, right? Each and every one of us has a vocation, a calling, or sometimes several in God's kingdom to spread God's rule. We, each of us, have a vocation and a calling. If you haven't identified that yet, then spend some time in prayer asking the Lord to reveal that to you. You know, we're talking about gifts of the Holy Spirit and how he gives those um, out into his body for the building up of the whole body. So each of us has a vocation and the church as a community also has a vocation. If you look at the website, um, we say that Good Shepherd is about revealing Christ's love caring for those within the sheepfold and searching for those who are lost outside. 
who are still in the darkness and bringing them in. So revealing God's love is done by caring for each other within the community and going outside and bringing more into the community so those, they too can be cared for. But the enemy will use the same kind of temptations individually in our lives and in the common life of the congregation to thwart God's plans. And it will mostly involve us to feel relevant, spectacular, or powerful. But God's way is through humility. Now, if none of those things are happening, let me tell you, you're not a threat to Satan. You will only be tempted in those ways if you are stepping into your calling and you are a threat to the enemy who does not want God's rule and God's reign to extend into the world. So in a sense, take heart if you are being tempted. If you are tempted to be spectacular in your ministry or you're tempted to be relevant in your ministry or powerful in your ministry, if those are the temptations, then he is perturbed about what God might do through you. The same is true in the church. If a church is just kind of trundling along, then it's no threat to the enemy. But if a church has stepped into their vocation as a body, that is the body of Christ, extending Christ's kingdom into the world, then get ready for temptation. And we must stand against it. See, Paul is talking here about one man who is Adam and the remedy for his disobedience, which is Jesus Christ. Adam and Eve were disobedient and rebellious towards God. Jesus was completely surrendered and obedient, did not need because his servanthood and his humility showed forth more relevance, more spectacularity, and more power than any of the wiles of the enemy could possibly bring to him in his humility. Glory shines on the cross. Glory shines out from the cross. So the tree in the middle of the garden where good and evil was a temptation for Adam and Eve, on that tree outside a city wall, good and evil were pitted against each other, but goodness through humility conquered evil. Goodness won out. The man and the woman ate of the tree and brought in death. Jesus hung on the tree and brought in life.
redeemed life. And the rule of Satan has been dealt a death blow. The true king is Jesus, and he is reclaiming what had fallen under Satan's reign through those who are obedient. So he's claiming it through us if we are obedient and surrendered to his will. That's how his reign, his rule, takes over from the rule of darkness. It's when our lives and our vocation and our ministry and all of what we are are surrendered and obedient to God's ways then more and more the enemy of our souls is conquered. And God gives it to us as a gracious, gracious gift. Sin has been dealt with, and therefore death, as has our exile from God. And it's all God's doing. Count up how many times Paul mentions the word gift in that short passage in Romans. I think we forget just how lavish the gift, how generous of God. You know, in our rebellion and disobedience, he could have just washed his hands and said, well, that's what they chose. I'll just leave them in their sins. But you see, we hear, he does not desire the death of sinners, but that they live. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He comes himself, takes off glory, and comes to live among us. See, Satan has been dealt a death blow on the cross. He will be completely conquered when the king returns. We had that discussion in as we ended up the Chronicles of Narnia. There is a return of the king. And what has effectually been done in defeating Satan will be fully ended. But for now... We, as the body of Christ, are to continue Christ's work because he dwells in us to bring his rule over all of the world against the dark forces of the enemy. Do not believe the Gnostic or the Muslim view of Jesus' trials. He was tempted in every way as we are. He was tempted in every way as we are. Truly. These were true temptations for him in the desert. He was pitted against another will who wanted him to not succeed by making an appearance of success being relevant, spectacular, and powerful. And Jesus withstood. 
tempted in every way as we are, yet did not sin, for he came to die and would not let the dark forces of the world derail him from that calling. Neither must we allow the enemy to derail us from ours. Are we on track in our individual lives? Are we showing forth his grace and his love to enemy and friend alike? Is our life together as a community a testimony to the love of the one who died for us so that we might live to him? Are we revealing Christ's love in our relationships with each other and with those outside of this community? Or are we giving in to the subtle temptations of the enemy of our souls. There's one remedy against such temptations. It's the weapon Jesus used to stand firm against the wiles of the enemy. And it is the word of God. See, the enemy, we know from scripture, knows The scriptures, he can recite them back. He knows what the scripture says, but he twists the scriptures. So we need to truly know the truth of God's word. We need to be in God's word. We need his Holy Spirit to reveal that to us. And that's best done in a community of those. Because if we get off track, the community can say, well, no, I think let's look at it this way. I think this is the true interpretation of this. The word of God is what is the weapon against the temptations of the enemy. And when we're equipped with the truth, when we're equipped with the truth of his word, God says through the psalmist, he will help us to prevail I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will guide you with my eye. And then he goes on to say, mercy embraces those who trust in the Lord. So may we be those who stand firm on God's word in resistance to Satan's temptations and therefore also those embraced by God's mercy and obediently fulfill the calling that he has for each of us. Amen.